Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, suicide, and disordered eating that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Around 12.30 p.m. on Tuesday, December 14th, 1909, a manager at Manhattan's Bayard Hotel answered a call. A feminine voice with a telltale southern drawl asked to have a vacant room reserved. About a half hour later, a taxi pulled up outside. A heavy-set woman wearing a long black dress and a thick veil emerged from the cab. The woman told the manager her name was Mrs. Maybrick but she couldn't sign for the room because her arm was sore. The clerk gave her a narrow-eyed stare. Without speaking, the woman slid a $5 bill, more than three times the rate for a night at the hotel, across the counter. The manager shrugged, pocketed the extra money, and gave the veiled woman a key to room 855. That afternoon, the black-clad guest stayed locked in her room, she refused to allow the bellhop or the maid inside. She requested every newspaper available be dropped outside her door. Around 4 p.m., the woman floated outside and got into a cab. The taxi driver found his passenger exceedingly suspicious. Mrs. Maybrick asked to stop at another hotel, then ordered the cabbie to drive aimlessly around the city for an hour. There was something off about the mysterious guest. When the driver dropped her back at the Bayard, he spoke to the hotel manager, who called the police. As soon as officers heard the description, they knew exactly who the veiled woman was. Her real name was Caroline Martin, and she was wanted on suspicion of murder. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our second episode on the 1909 bathtub tragedy. Last week, we talked about the perplexing death of 24-year-old O.C. Sneed. This week, we'll discover her murderous family's fate and reconstruct the crime that baffled law enforcement and locals alike. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. 
you can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. News of 64-year-old Caroline Martin's whereabouts reached police in East Orange, New Jersey on December 14, 1909. That same evening, Detective Sergeant William O'Neill rushed to Manhattan's Bayard Hotel. A crowd of reporters trailed him as he dashed inside. The press posed a problem. For Detective O'Neill to speak to Caroline, he needed the mob of nosy journalists out of the way. Luckily, the hotel manager was on top of it. He moved the veiled woman to a room on the seventh floor, then told reporters she'd escaped out the back of the building. The press scrambled outside, giving Detective O'Neill time to knock on Caroline's door. According to the account given by author Norman Zerold in his book, Three Sisters in Black, the events went something like this. I cannot receive anyone at the moment. I wish to speak with you, Madam Martin. There's no Madam Martin here. My name is Mrs. Maybrick. I know who you are, Caroline. As Detective O'Neill tried to convince Caroline to talk, the reporters realized they'd been duped. The crowd rushed back inside and up to room 855, where they believed they'd find the suspect. Of course, the black-clad woman wasn't inside. However, journalists found something she'd left behind, a small black box. As soon as they opened it, they realized they'd uncovered what was perhaps the most crucial piece of evidence yet. The box was full of clippings from newspapers and other documents. On the top of the stack, reporters found countless articles about the death of O.C. Sneed. Further down were numerous hotel receipts, which began on the date O.C.'s body was discovered and showed Caroline bouncing between accommodations ever since. At the very bottom of the pile, journalists found the evidence that made their skin crawl. Oh, my. What? This is certainly going to make headlines. Give me that. Hidden beneath the other documents were three separate suicide notes, all penned in what looked like identical handwriting. Every letter was signed by O.C.M.W. Sneed, and each echoed a similar sentiment. In one note, the writer calling herself O.C. said... Last year, my little daughter died. Other near and dear kindred, too, have gone to heaven. I long to go there. I have been very weak and ill a long time. Death will be a blessed relief to me in my suffering. In another, it read, My little daughter has died. Other near and dear ones have died. I wish to join them in heaven. I have been prostrated with illness a long time. The notes all sounded eerily similar to the letter found next to O.C.'s body. 
They seemed like drafts, as if whoever wrote them was trying to find the perfect, most convincing phrasing. Reporters ran to write articles about this incredible discovery. Detectives were equally pleased. The little black box provided all the evidence necessary to obtain a warrant for Caroline's arrest. The next day, Wednesday, December 15, 1909, East Orange police handcuffed the veiled woman and took her into custody. At a press conference with reporters the next day, she had some interesting explanations for her odd behavior and the contents of her black box. Why did you miss your own daughter's funeral? You wouldn't understand what it's like to lose a child. I could hardly get out of bed. But you were jumping from hotel to hotel in New York. We have the receipts to prove it. I have no permanent home anymore. Why use a fake name then? You clearly don't understand discretion. It's terrible to be poor. It's worse for others to know that you're poor. I couldn't disgrace my family name by telling people my true identity. Fine. Why did your daughter weigh just 80 pounds upon her death? She... she was starving herself. We gave her milk, biscuits, oranges, everything we had, and she refused it. I'm telling you, she wanted to die. There was nothing we could have done to stop her. What do you have to say about the suicide notes found in your luggage? They're the only thing I have left of my daughter. But why would Osi write so many similar notes? And why ought we believe Osi was the one to write them at all? She clearly thought long and hard about the sentiment she wanted to leave behind. Although Caroline's behavior was definitely suspicious, she seemed to have explanations for everything. Still, her excuses didn't absolve her. If O.C. was obviously suicidal, her caretaker shouldn't have left her alone. Even if the Sisters in Black didn't kill her, they made it possible for, and perhaps even encouraged, her to kill herself. Although it was possible that one sister spearheaded the plan, they seemed to work as a unit, with each veiled sibling sharing culpability for, and the eventual reward of, O.C.'s death. After their 84-year-old mother passed away, they would each receive a cut of O.C.'s massive life insurance payout. With this information, authorities returned to that dark Manhattan basement and formally arrested 61-year-old Mary Sneed. East Orange police finally had their three main suspects behind bars. As for the other persons of interest, law enforcement was practically certain that 84-year-old Martha Wardlaw had nothing to do with O.C.'s untimely demise. Although she was the beneficiary of O.C.'s life insurance, she seemed to be a scapegoat for the Sisters in Black, a way for them to deflect suspicion or responsibility by pointing out that the money didn't go directly to them. O.C.'s husband, Fletcher Sneed, was another story. Virginia said he was dead, but officers found her difficult to trust. In fact, inside one of Caroline's suitcases, investigators found letters that suggested Fletcher could be alive and working in Ontario, just across the Canadian border. Detectives thought perhaps Fletcher could be the knot that tied the whole story together. Without him, the case seemed bizarre and disjointed. With him, the mystery might unfold, and O.C. Sneed's life and death would come into perfect focus.
Up next, Fletcher Sneed finally speaks. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast Network, and I'm thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for us. It's the four-year anniversary of a podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, why wait? There's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Warnos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. You do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. By mid-December 1909, East Orange police were inching closer to the truth behind 24-year-old O.C. Sneed's death. There are three main suspects— 57-year-old Virginia Wardlaw, 61-year-old Mary Sneed, and 64-year-old Caroline Martin were behind bars, and authorities were closing in on O.C.'s husband. Virginia had told police that 34-year-old Fletcher Sneed was dead, but a letter found in Caroline's luggage suggested otherwise. Reporters who dug through Caroline's bags at the Bayard Hotel also had this information. They were the ones who discovered Fletcher alive and well, working as a hotel cook in St. Catharines, a small city in Ontario, Canada. Through the press, East Orange police discovered Fletcher had been living in Ontario since April 1909. He applied for his job under the name John Lucas and told the man who hired him that his wife and child were dead. Hoping for an incredible headline, Journalists pressed Fletcher for information about O.C.'s death. Have you seen this, Mr. Sneed? I don't go by that name anymore. Your wife is dead. Your mother-in-law is in police custody. Will you make a statement? No. No. I I cannot make a statement. I won't. I left all that behind, and I'm not going back to it. Do you miss your wife, Mr. Sneed? It's very complicated. I loved her with all my heart. Now would you please leave me alone? Why did Virginia Wardlaw tell police you were dead? Told you, Fletcher Sneed is dead. I'm John Lucas now, so would you- Do you believe your wife's mother and aunts are guilty of murder? No, of course not. It's a case of Southern pride. You you wouldn't understand. Good day. Wait. Ugh. Fletcher echoed the argument that Virginia's lawyer, Franklin Fort, made. 
all three women's strange, evasive behavior could be explained by their pride. The sisters would do anything to make sure word of their dwindling finances didn't get out. But Fletcher was protecting his pride, too. At the time, a husband was expected to support his wife financially. But in early spring of 1909, Fletcher's job was in danger. He was called to testify against his boss for unlawful behavior and felt overcome with fear. Rather than appear in court, Fletcher claimed he decided to leave town and change his name. Fletcher left his wife in March, a full eight months before O.C.'s death. It was unlikely that he had an active hand in his wife's demise from so far away. New Jersey authorities had hoped Fletcher's statements would break the case wide open. But instead, detectives were right back where they started. Three black-clad, heavily-veiled women sat behind bars, all equally insistent that their relatives starved and drowned herself. Despite plenty of evidence against the sisters, East Orange police knew that they had their work cut out for them. Franklin Fort was one of the best lawyers in New Jersey, and he had agreed to represent all three sisters in court. Caroline and Mary's preliminary hearings began on December 18, 1909. They shuffled into the courtroom, faces obscured by black fabric. Mary claimed that she and her sisters were in New York on the night of O.C.'s death, but this excuse immediately fell apart. Some neighbors of Mary's said that only Mary and her elderly mother were at home the night of November 28th. What's more, a number of East Orange locals testified that they saw Caroline in town on November 28th and 29th. But because the women dressed so similarly, it was sometimes hard for outsiders to tell who was who. Indeed, testimony suggested that the sisters traded veils and almost never went out in public together, thereby intentionally blending their identities into one. Moreover, although Mary and Caroline were in New York by the night of Monday, November 29th, the timeline of the crime appeared to have been worked out precisely. The prosecutor proposed that Virginia waited to call the police until 24 hours after O.C.'s death so that Caroline would have time to leave New Jersey before authorities arrived. This was enough to make the court distrust the sisters. Despite the courtroom's suspicious eyes and excited whispers, Mary stayed stoic. Caroline, on the other hand, fumed behind her veil. I really don't think I or my sisters have been given a fair shot. Have you seen the sketch of me they put in the papers? They made me look like a clown. To be fair, Madam Martin, your face is quite difficult to make out behind the veil. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Either way, it's irrelevant. You only have to answer one very specific question. If you're truly innocent, why did you run and withhold information from the police? For my own amusement. The hearing descended into chaos. Ultimately, Caroline left the courtroom looking decidedly unhinged, with Mary trailing silently behind her. Caroline's frustration led her to fire Franklin Fort and hire a new attorney to represent her case separately. After appearing before a grand jury on December 22, 1909, Virginia Wardlaw, Mary Sneed, and Caroline Martin were all formally indicted for the murder of O.C. Sneed and with aiding and abetting O.C.'s self-murder. 
According to author Norman Zierold, this was likely because the prosecution was still not sure if Osi had been killed directly or had been driven to suicide by her mother and aunts. Either way, the sisters remained in custody while awaiting their January arraignment. Until then, East Orange police had time to collect even more evidence. An autopsy suggested O.C. was under the influence of a poison or an opiate when she was placed in the bathtub. A January 1910 analysis of O.C.'s stomach established this as a certainty. According to Dr. William H. Hicks, there was no doubt that O.C. had ingested morphine regularly in her final days, and possibly long before that. This could have been the illness the suicide notes referred to, It's possible O.C. was suffering from a morphine addiction that left her lethargic and unwilling to eat. Fletcher may have left her because of the social stigma of substance abuse, and the need to purchase ever more morphine might have contributed to the family's financial problems. But it was also possible that Virginia, Mary, and Caroline used morphine to weaken O.C. They could have slipped the substance into her food or told her it was medicine. This, combined with long-term starvation, would almost certainly have left O.C. in a state of constant delirium. In this situation, it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, for O.C. to understand or fight back against her caretaker's plot. She would have been only vaguely aware of the will made out in her name, the suicide note she may or may not have signed, and the massive fortune her mother and aunt stood to gain. All this information came together to form a confusing and often contradictory story. With all the evidence parsed out, two different theories emerged. One, which Caroline Martin put forth, was that severe depression drove O.C. to use morphine. When, under the influence of the drug, she contemplated suicide, writing multiple notes over time. On the evening of November 28th, she penned a final letter took enough morphine to fall unconscious and drowned in the tub. The other side thought Virginia, Mary, and Caroline were too suspicious to be innocent. Evidence like the missing towel, pen and ink, the lack of coal in the home's furnace, their constant lies, and their obvious motive made a compelling case against the sisters. They could have given O.C. morphine, faked the suicide note, and drowned her themselves. Of course, the sisters argued fervently against the latter story. At their arraignment on January 29, 1910, all three veiled figures pleaded not guilty. Due to various postponements and other issues, it would be nearly a year before the trial. In the meantime, the sisters were forced to trade their coal-colored layers for prison clothes. For the first time, their faces were unveiled. Stop looking at me. Sorry. I'm not hungry anyway. I could get you something easier to chew. What's that supposed to mean? It's just... your teeth are... Well, I don't mean to be rude, but you don't have many teeth, madam. You might have an easier time eating mashed potatoes or soup instead. Get out of here! Take the food with you! As soon as their faces were visible, it became clear why the sisters kept them veiled. They were obsessed with looking wealthy, but they couldn't afford dental care. Virginia and Caroline had very few teeth. 
Caroline only accepted soft foods. Virginia refused to eat at all. Soon enough, Virginia grew slimmer. She took meals but gave them to other prisoners or slipped them into the trash. Her once stout frame shrunk, and within a matter of months, she looked as emaciated as Osi once did. Virginia was starving herself, and prison wardens knew it. By August, the situation looked grim. Authorities tried force-feeding her, but it was already too late. Her stomach and organs were shutting down. On August 8, 1910, prison doctors administered heart stimulants and oxygen in the hopes of breathing life back into the 58-year-old. It didn't work. Three days later, Virginia died of voluntary starvation. Her sisters weren't allowed in the room to say goodbye. Of all the available evidence, Virginia's decision to starve herself might be the most incriminating. She chose to die rather than stand trial. Her sisters, though, still had to face the slow-moving hand of justice. Yet there was another hurdle for Caroline Martin to overcome before she could stand trial. At the sisters' grand jury hearing the previous December, shortly after Caroline had fired Franklin Fort as her lawyer, he planted the idea that Caroline was insane. This wasn't just to rationalize her theatrical behavior. It was to try to get Virginia and her sister both off the hook. Now, with Virginia dead, the court took this accusation seriously and began a lengthy preliminary hearing to determine if Caroline was of sound mind. If Caroline was judged insane, she would skip the trial and be sent straight to an asylum. If she was judged sane, she would be tried alongside Mary for the murder of O.C. Sneed. Through November and December 1910, the defense and the prosecution debated Caroline's mental state. Dozens of witnesses from Caroline's past were brought in and testified that she had exhibited bizarre and disturbing behavior throughout her life. According to them, her family had even thought of institutionalizing her. By the end of the hearing, however, the word of two prominent doctors was taken as truth. The men conceded that while Caroline was definitely peculiar and very near to being mentally ill, she was sane enough to understand her crime and stand trial on December 9, 1910. Exactly one month later, she appeared in court for her daughter's murder. Madam Martin, you intend to plead not guilty to the murder of Miss Oceana Sneed, is that correct? No, Your Honor. Oh. My lawyer has informed me that I may plead it was manslaughter instead, but I plead neither guilty nor contest the charge against me. Rather than pleading not guilty to murder, which would have almost certainly landed Caroline in prison for the rest of her life, the defense advised her to plead non-volt, or no contest, to manslaughter. This strategy allowed Caroline to save face, but the plea didn't match up with the evidence. Voluntary manslaughter most often refers to a crime of passion, that is, an intentional but not premeditated killing. If the sisters in black did murder O.C., Evidence suggested the crime was planned up to a decade in advance. If they didn't, then the death must have been a suicide. There wasn't a version of the story in which Caroline's plea made sense. But Caroline's lawyers thought the judge would take pity on her for her old age and obvious confusion. And for some reason, the judge allowed it. 
Caroline was sentenced to just seven years behind bars. About a month later, on February 8, 1911, Mary Sneed appeared in court. Legally, there was no such thing as an accessory to voluntary manslaughter. For this reason, Mary went free. To this day, what happened inside 89 North 14th Street on the evening of November 28, 1909, remains a matter of conjecture. It's generally accepted that O.C. Sneed was a victim of murder. No matter what the black-clad sisters said, there was too much evidence against them that couldn't be explained away. The veiled women came from the Southern aristocracy. When their money started to dwindle, they used O.C. as a pawn for financial gain. Eventually, that income stream ran dry, and they saw only one way to get back on their feet, cash in on O.C.'s life insurance. Coming up, we go back to the last night of O.C. Sneed's tragically short life. Now back to the story. O.C. Sneed's life was just getting started in 1907 when she was 22 years old. She and her husband, 32-year-old Fletcher Sneed, were looking forward to the birth of their first child. Unfortunately, things went downhill quickly. The baby died shortly after her birth, and O.C. and Fletcher's relationship fractured. While we don't know the details of their lives during this time, it seems that they had little money between them and even less affection. Perhaps due to the need to split bills, they began sharing a home with Virginia, Mary, and Caroline. The family had to scrounge for food and shelter. Their meager meals must have consisted of biscuits, milk, and when they were lucky oranges. They struggled to keep up with rent payments. The threat of eviction loomed over the family wherever they went. Landlords came knocking, ready to kick the tenants out, but somehow the strange veiled sisters always came up with the money. Here's the money. Now leave us alone. This is only payment for one month. You're three months behind on rent. Ugh. There's the last three months, and three more in advance. Landlords were always surprised at how the family seemed to be destitute one moment and wealthy the next. This was likely because the black-clad sisters would get low on funds, then use one of O.C.'s life insurance policies as collateral for a cash loan. At that point, they would have enough money to cover their bills several times over. This system worked well until it didn't. Sometime around 1908 or early 1909, it seems that insurance companies stopped selling policies to the sisters. Without these, they couldn't get new loans, meaning that if something didn't change, their pockets would be permanently empty. Perhaps the sisters thought they could get away with swindling insurance companies forever. Or perhaps O.C.'s early death was always part of the plan. Either way, the young woman's life was insured for thousands of dollars, and the sisters expected to inherit property in O.C.'s name. The total would have amounted to $36,000, the equivalent of around $1 million today. This was more than enough motivation for them to end O.C.'s life. But Virginia, Mary, and Caroline weren't completely reckless. 
If they wanted to get away with murder, they knew the timing and method had to be foolproof. Luckily for the sisters, it seems that O.C. and Fletcher's relationship never fully recovered after their daughter's death. Even when they had a second baby on the way, Fletcher took off to Canada, leaving a pregnant O.C. alone with her scheming relatives. A few months after Fletcher left, O.C. went into labor. Dr. William Pettit and a nurse named Ethel Moore assisted at the birth. You're doing great. Just keep breathing. Try biting down on this towel. It helps with the pain. No. I need food. I'm so hungry. Go grab her something from the kitchen. There's nothing there, sir. I already checked. It's likely that even while O.C. was pregnant, her relatives denied her food. During the birth, she reportedly cried out that she was being starved, possibly due to this malnutrition or the interference of Caroline and the ants. O.C.'s son had to be hospitalized soon after his birth. The labor took a toll on O.C.'s already frail body. Dr. Pettit told the young woman's caretakers that she required a somewhat risky operation. Even behind their veils, he could make out their wide, hopeful eyes. The sisters showed Dr. Pettit O.C.'s will. The document gave the doctor $1,000, far more than the rate of his services. Dr. Pettit likely didn't believe that O.C. wrote the will at all. Instead, it was as if Virginia, Mary, and Caroline were giving him an incentive to botch the young woman's surgery. If she died, he would get a handsome reward. A chill ran down the doctor's spine. Whatever the veiled sisters were up to, it wasn't good. He refused the money and contacted the police, but nothing was done on O.C.'s behalf. Dr. Pettit continued checking in on O.C. over the following months. As she grew paler and more exhausted, the doctor suggested fresh air, sunshine, and a healthier diet. He wrote a prescription for some medication, but the veiled sisters never bothered to fill it. Every time he saw O.C., she looked worse. Yet the only diagnosis he could make were malnutrition and inadequate care. It's likely that Virginia, Mary, and Caroline hoped O.C. would die of starvation. When this didn't work as quickly as they wanted, they started giving her morphine, which left her disoriented and nauseous. With starvation and opiate use combined, the sisters hoped the death would seem like a result of poverty and sickness, not foul play. Indeed, people believed O.C. was seriously ill. She certainly looked it. By mid-1909, her cheeks were sunken in and her skin was sallow. Starvation left her weakened and confused. In September 1909, Virginia hired a lawyer to help revise O.C.'s will. In any other circumstance, a relative altering a 24-year-old's will would seem incredibly suspicious. In this case, though, it didn't. O.C. was semi-conscious and quite obviously on the edge of death. Virginia looked like a caring aunt trying to get her niece's affairs in order before the reaper's inevitable knock. The sisters' plan was coming together perfectly. O.C.'s newly revised will bequeathed all her assets to her grandmother. 
84-year-old Martha. But Martha was elderly, nearly blind, and likely to pass away soon. The moment she died, every cent of O.C.'s money would fall into the veiled sister's hands. There were just two problems. Firstly, rent was due. You've got one week to get me the money. One week! Or what? Or I'm kicking you out. You said that last month. I mean it this time. And secondly, Dr. Pettit kept getting in the way. He had seen Osi's failure to improve and stared at the sisters with narrow eyes. It made them nervous. He could unravel their entire scheme. Virginia, Mary, and Caroline felt they only had one option. They had to leave Brooklyn. They could rent a home somewhere cheaper. They could move to a place where nobody knew who they were. In mid-November 1909, Virginia and Osi arrived outside 89 North 14th Street in East Orange, New Jersey. They didn't stop to speak to any neighbors before shuffling inside and locking the door behind themselves. It's unclear when Mary and Caroline arrived. The sisters dressed in almost identical cloaks and veils and didn't leave the house in a group. They rolled their identities into one, convincing neighbors that a single black-clad woman lived in the home. After their initial arrival, it seemed that locals never caught another glimpse of the cloaked woman's sickly, waifish companion. Indeed, neighbors didn't see much of anything from number 89 until the evening of November 28th. Something's going on over there. Where? The new neighbor's house, across the street. Oh, would you leave them alone? I'm sure they just want their privacy. All the lights are on upstairs. There's a lot of shadows moving around. Maybe they have guests. They don't seem like the kind to have guests. It looks like... Huh. I can't really tell. What was that? I don't know. That evening, Virginia, Caroline, and possibly Mary were busy staging what they hoped would be an open-and-shut suicide case. Nobody in East Orange knew their names or what they really looked like. They thought this anonymity would make it easier to get away with murder. By November 28th, Osi had been starving for so long that her muscles were atrophied. She could hardly walk, let alone fight back, but she just wouldn't die. The sisters, menacing and spectral in their dark cloaks, decided something had to be done. A heavy dose of morphine likely knocked Osi out. Then she was a prop in her relatives' hands. One of the sisters ran a bath. Another undressed Osi and placed her clothing in a messy pile on the bathroom floor. The final sister, possibly Caroline, affixed a suicide note to the clothes. It's possible that O.C. really did write these tragic letters during periods of depression, but it's more often believed that Caroline drafted multiple notes than chose the most convincing option. O.C. might have signed the letters during a time of starvation-induced semi-consciousness, or Caroline may have forged her signature. Either way, a single note was left at the scene. With the stage set, there was only one step left. The sisters likely worked together to drop the unconscious O.C. into the tub. 
They held Osi under the water long enough to stop her breathing. When they finally let her go, the young woman floated, her long auburn hair swirling around her lifeless face. By the following afternoon, on November 29th, Caroline headed to New York. Whether or not Mary was present for the murder remains unclear, but even if she'd stayed with her elderly mother in Manhattan that night, she was likely complicit in the plan. The three sisters thought their crime was seamless, but they had missed some crucial details. There was no coal in the furnace, meaning the bathwater was never actually heated. There was no towel in the bathroom, meaning if O.C. did intend to bathe, she would have had no way to dry off. And perhaps most importantly, there was no pen or ink anywhere in the home, meaning O.C. had no way to write a suicide note on the evening of her death. Late the next day, Virginia finally called a doctor to come to the house. The scene was suspicious from the get-go. Osi's body had been floating in the water for nearly 24 hours, yet Virginia claimed to have just noticed it. Soon, a police officer was sent over. Virginia kept her statements to law enforcement vague and completely omitted her sisters from the story. It took weeks to track Mary and Caroline down. In the end, the sisters didn't receive a penny in life insurance payouts. Their mother, Martha Wardlaw, died while they awaited trial in prison, and O.C.'s son David also passed away that year in a fire at the hospital. The sisters' lives revolved around trying to live up to their family name, and they committed a horrific crime in the hopes of securing status and fortune. Ultimately, all this did was create tragedy and make them infamous for lying, thieving, and murder, tarnishing their reputation more than poverty ever could have. Virginia Wardlaw, thinking she was sure to be convicted, starved herself to death before she went to trial. If she had lived long enough, she might have actually gone free. Caroline Martin was given a relatively short sentence, and Mary Sneed was let off the hook entirely. The sisters wormed their way out of a real punishment, and tragically... O.C. Sneed never got the justice she deserved. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. For more information on O.C. Sneed... Among the many sources we used, we found Three Sisters in Black, The Bizarre True Case of the Bathtub Tragedy by Norman Zerold, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Eddie Lee, Ellie Schiff, Laura Faye Smith, and Jen Wong. Solved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Each week, join me and my co-host, Greg, for a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years' worth, and catch new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Listen to Serial Killers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.